Well, this morning, as I have um, said at the, the opening, is our, another one of our semi-annual FAQ Sundays, and periodically through the year, I like to pause and see what questions our congregation has about the life of faith, whether it's you know, trouble interpreting a specific Bible passage or a component of what it means to follow Jesus. And for this iteration, there were two questions that were submitted. Actually, I just got a third one texted to me this morning that was really good that I'll kind of uh, uh, maybe punt till the next one. I'm not going to address it right now. I'm not prepared for it. Uh, But the two questions that were submitted for this week were, uh, the first was on the exclusivity of Christianity among the other religions. I think it's a really good question, but I'm going to punt on it. And the reason I'm punting on it is because I've already planned to speak tentatively on the subject January of 2024. So you're going to have to sit and wait uh, a little while. I know it's going to be a bit for it, but um, I know it's, who knows, maybe I'll, I'll get to it early. Um, but that is the 2024. So I, I see I plan out sometimes how far out what, I'm gonna, what we're going to preach on. There's always room for adjustment. Um, but the second question had to do with the practice of communion in the church. We come from a variety of backgrounds in this room. Some of you come from uh, traditions that were different than the way we celebrate and observe communion. Some of you might know kind of intellectually that other, uh, you know, methods of communion exist, but you've never experienced them. Some of you might be surprised to be like, other people celebrate this differently than we do. Um, But here's the question. I just want to give you the question that was asked. The question is, why can people receive the body and blood of Christ at one church, but not another. If we believe the same thing, why am I made to think I am sinning by receiving the body and blood of Christ in a tradition different than my own? So there's kind of two areas that I'm going to talk about, but the the context for this question uh, deals with the different practices between Catholics and Protestants. But what might surprise you to hear is that there are actually four predominant views of communion in the church. Are our differences and perspectives so significant that we are unable to cross the aisle and come to the table together? So here's what I'd like to do this morning. First, since I'm going to be discussing some divergent Christian traditions, I want to start by finding common ground. Let's start by figuring out, uh, you know, before we get to our disagreement, what is it that we agree on? Second, I want to briefly examine what is communion. In essence, looking at those four different traditions. The third component answers the question, who should take communion? Because we have some of that implicit here in this question. And lastly, I want to try to give us some concrete steps of what that might mean for us going forward. And I guess, lastly, lastly, we'll, we'll celebrate um, the table together if you'd like. Now, a few disclaimers before I jump in on things. There is a lot of good writing on all of these sides. I don't think any, you know, we might have our particular favorites, but I don't know that any of them has a particular corner on the market that, you know, they've got a supermajority of rightness and everybody else is wrong. You know, take even what I say as with a healthy dose of skepticism. You should always do that anyway. Don't don't just believe it because I say it. Right? I'm not the arbiter of truth when it comes to this practice, but I'm going to communicate you know, to the best of my ability. I know many of you I know how much I love the Holy Post. Um, uh, just a few weeks ago, actually, uh, Sky Jatani and Caitlin Shess had a 
Uh, it's for their Patreon, their supporters, but they had a bonus episode. I think it was called Communion 101 where they talked about the subject. And I got to say, you know, Caitlin Chess is way smarter than me. Uh, so uh, if you're a supporter, go listen to that. Or if you're not, uh, come talk to me. Maybe I can get you in touch with that particular episode. Uh, lastly, you might uh, hear me slipping into a variety of terms. Uh, I try to keep things fresh, not just use the same term over and over again. So you, you're going to hear the Lord's Supper. You're going to hear Eucharist. You're going to hear Communion. Uh, those are all different words, different phrases that I'm using to refer to the same, you know, the table. It's another metaphor or idiom that is used to represent the same idea. I lied. I have one last disclaimer. Uh, this is probably of the most important of all of them. I am grateful for the grace of Jesus Christ when I'm speaking about something like this. Because the whole act of communion is a mystery. All of us are doing our best to scratch the surface behind the meaning of something that none of us can fully comprehend. And so I believe deep in my soul that the blood of Jesus Christ is able to cover every sin, every misstep in our life of faith. And so to some extent, this answers partially the second half of the question that we have before us. Because when we are doing our best to pursue God, we're going to get some things wrong. We just are. None of us is 100% in alignment with the things of God 100% of the time. It might be about communion. Maybe it's about baptism. Maybe it's women's ordination. Maybe it's the end times. I'm grateful that there is no written theological test that we have to pass to reach God's kingdom. It is only by the blood of Jesus that we have access to God's presence, not whether or not we were correct in our theological squabbles. And that gives me hope that I could speak on something like this and I might land in the wrong place, but I trust in, in God's grace for that. So let's jump in to what unites us. Every tradition, every Christian tradition believes that this is a meaningful ritual that it was something important of faith, that it was instituted by Jesus. It's a way that all of us seek to follow Jesus in the best of our ability. Right? We agree on the importance, maybe different levels of importance, but we all agree that it is important. We agree on the source of the ceremony that comes from Jesus. Someone might put a different focus or a different weight on a particular element of the rite, but I think it's important for us to be gracious to one another. Give them the benefit of the doubt. Benefit of the doubt. Right? The others aren't trying to be flippant or disrespectful. Uh, others aren't trying to be exclusive in the midst of this. That there is alignment. That this is important and meaningful to us as Christians. I know that's simple. It's succinct. But I think what it means for us to have communion, what we have what unites us is far greater than the places of disconnect. So I want to begin examining communion by looking at what the Gospels have to say about the Lord's Supper. If you, if you want to pull out Bibles and follow along, I'm going to read out of Mark 14. Um, this meal is recorded in uh, the three synoptic Gospels. It's kind of in John, but not quite in the same way as the other three. Uh, Luke's a bit longer. Luke is the one that explicitly mentions that Judas participated in the Lord's Supper. Matthew and Mark leave that out. Um, I picked Mark because it's shorter. Matthew and Mark are pretty much almost agree verbatim, and Mark's like my favorite gospel, so 
that's what we went with. Um, I picked, pulled on the screen, if you wanted to look at it on your own and kind of compare and contrast, uh, those are the passages, uh, Matthew 26, Mark 14, and Luke 22, that records this institution. So I'm going to read out of Mark 14, 22 to 25. As they were eating, he, being Jesus, took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to them, and said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant. Some some translations add the new covenant in there, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And just a, a quick aside, on, if you look at verse 23, it says he took the cup and when he had given thanks, that word for given thanks in Greek is eucharistio, and that's where we get the word eucharist from, this act of giving thanks. So we've read the text, right? It's obvious precisely what Jesus meant so we can close our Bibles, pack up, and go home, right? right? There's, there's no way that there's any ambiguity in that passage, now, I've never been very skilled at sarcasm, but over thousands of years, as you can imagine, right, the church has parsed these passages to death and, and arrived to four basic views of what happens in the Eucharist. So the first view that we're going to look at, and there's an intentional order in this, is transubstantiation. Now, transubstantiation is the view that is held by the Roman Catholic Church. It's the belief that the conversion of the substances of the Eucharist, right, the bread and the wine, becomes, transforms into the body and blood of Jesus Christ at consecration, with only the appearance of bread and wine still remaining. So what this means is the Roman Catholic Church believes that at at consecration, at the moment that the priest recites the words instituted by Jesus Christ, the very nature of those various elements of bread and wine are transformed into the literal body and blood of Jesus Christ. What's consumed may look like ordinary bread and wine, but the functional nature of those elements has changed. Now this conclusion, this perspective, takes the words of Jesus literally, right? We read it. He said, this is my body. This is my blood. Not this represents my body or blood. Another passage that is cited is John 6, verses 52 and 50 through 59, in which Jesus is telling the crowds, right, if you want to have eternal life, if you want any part of this kingdom, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Now, this statement was very confusing to the original hearers. If you read the context, basically everyone left him. But in both instances, both the the gospel, um, you know, Matthew, Mark, and Luke passages that we focused on, as well as this John 6 passage, What comes out of the text is a literalistic reading, not just a literal reading, right? Literal, I think, can involve symbolism and, and, you know, you you could still have literal readings in that, meaning that it's true. We believe it to be true. Literalistic is, you know, it's it's like the mountains clap their hands. Literal is, right, the, the mountains are praising God in some way. Literalistic is that you imagine mountains literally clapping, I don't know, rock monsters from Tolkien or something there, clapping their hands. Uh, sorry, I digress. Um, I don't know the ins and outs of this position. I am not Roman Catholic myself. I don't know that after consecration, if you took the wine and genetically tested it like you would, you know, test 
other human blood. I, I don't know what would come out of that. I'm not well versed in their theology to know how a Roman Catholic would respond to it. But that is, they believe that it, the essence, not just the essence, but the very nature of those things change. Now, I'll talk a, a little bit later about who should and shouldn't take communion, but I want to focus here. I want to pause here first because this is one of the primary dividing lines between Catholicism and Protestants. Typically, Catholics are welcome to take part in communion in Protestant churches, but it's not the other way around. Protestants are typically excluded from Catholic celebrations of the Eucharist. Again, I'm not an expert in the area, but it appears that the reason why is because Protestants don't believe, again, typically don't believe in transubstantiation. Right? The, if we don't believe that these elements literally are becoming the body and blood of Jesus, Catholics has asked us, out of respect, not to take them for their belief. And, and my hunch goes back to the passage, 1 Corinthians 11, which we'll look at a little bit later, which indicates that harm could befall someone if they take it in an unsuitable way. And so the thought is, well, if you don't believe what we believe in this, we don't want you to take it in an unworthy manner. So that's just as an aside. Um, we'll, we'll circle back to that. So that's transubstantiation. The second is what's called consubstantiation. It's held by the Lutheran Church. Now, consubstantiation states that the substance of the bread and wine coexist with the body and blood of Christ. So if you are taking communion in a Lutheran church, what Lutherans teach is that it is physically the body, like the physical body and blood of Jesus is present in the bread and wine. But how it's different is that the bread and wine continues to exist at bread and wine, that they coexist together. And it's a mystery. We don't know the mechanism of how this works any more than we know the mechanism of how Jesus was fully God and fully man together, what theologians call the hypostatic union. Those two natures coexisted. So two Lutherans are saying, they argue, that this divine gift of the body and blood of Christ coexist with the common elements of bread and wine. And if you know church history, this shouldn't really surprise you. You know, Martin Luther, when he issued his reforms, he wasn't trying to create a new denomination. He was trying to reform the Catholic Church, but he was branded a heretic and kicked out. And so in many ways, Lutheranism kind of comes out of like a, a Catholic light, if you will. So it's, it's not surprising that there is some similarity between these two positions. Now, the, the remaining two perspectives of communion are the more mainstream Protestant and evangelical understanding. So the third view is called receptionism. This is what's in Reformed traditions, the Anglican tradition. I think some Methodists might hold to this as well. Uh, this is sometimes called spiritual presence. And, and what it believes is that when we take communion, Christ is not physically present, there's no transformation, there's no cohabiting of the blood and uh, physical blood and body of Jesus, but that Christ is spiritually present in those elements. So when a believer participates in the table, they are still receiving the, the spiritually the body and blood of Jesus Christ by faith. Now, this position and the previous two positions would label communion as a sacrament. You've probably heard that. If you were raised uh, in Catholic churches, uh, Catholics have seven sacraments. Most Protestant churches only uh, highlight two sacraments. But most Protestants, or many Protestants, would call this a sacrament. Um, and what that means is that there's something sacred within this act. Literally, the etymology of the word sacrament 
Sacrament means sacred mystery. Now, uh, yeah, where was I going to go with that? Let's see. So, yeah, th- this idea of sacrament. So there is something sacred in this, where God's grace is conferred to us through this act. Now, this is different than the final view, view which is called memorialism. And this is the view that's often uh, operates in a lot of Baptist churches, a lot of non-denominational churches, and it's largely based upon the writings of Ulrich Zwingli, who also was, I think he was Swiss, some Swiss reformer. And in this perspective, there's nothing mysterious going on with the bread and the juice. <laughs> I switched to juice. They don't usually do wine. We're not doing wine either, I suppose. That it's merely a memorial, a remembrance of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's just meant to be a reminder to us of his suffering and death, that it is a symbolic act. And this gets back to this idea of sacrament. And in most, some Baptist churches might still call this a sacrament, but a lot of them don't call it a sacrament. They call it an ordinance. It's a commemoration. Nothing sacred explicitly about it, but something that was just instituted by Jesus, ordained by him, so it's an ordinance. Now, you might be able to see by my ordering of these four views that there's, to some extent, a dissent in the sacredness of this act. Right? Catholics hold it in such high regard that it is, they bar anyone who doesn't believe their precise doctrine because they believe it is the literal body and blood of Jesus Christ. Then you can descend all the way down to the Baptist church where there's nothing mystical that's happening. It's really just an event that's meant to remind us of something that Jesus did on our behalf. Now, I can't, I can't tell you with any degree of certainty, which one is correct. I think, like I said, they all have good points to them. I, I often find myself wavering. I'm at like 3.5, you know, wavering between the two um, uh, in that, probably erring a little bit more on the side of three. But as, as I said at the beginning, I believe strongly in the grace of Jesus Christ that the, the gates of heaven aren't flung open or barred before us based on whether or not we align with the correct position. So those are the, that is what is communion. Now the next half of this was focused this morning of who is it that should take communion. Now when I was in seminary, one of the skills that we were taught was to, quote, fence the table. Now what that means is you're to create an environment where people in the congregation would know whether or not they were supposed to participate in communion. For instance, if you are a non-believer in, in many churches, um, you know, they might say, oh, that we're gr- glad that you're here, great that you can, you know, worship with us, but this is not for you, you know. Um, some churches will say, you know, don't take communion, but you can come up and receive a blessing instead. Um, but the presupposition of why people fence the table is that this is something that is in the worship service for some, but not all. And it's largely based upon a principle, or based off of something Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11. And if you want to turn there, you can. It's uh, 1 Corinthians 11, starting at verse 27. Um, You don't have to, though. Paul says this. He's talking about communion. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. I referred to that earlier with, you know, I think that's where the the Catholic exclusion comes from. 
Continuing, let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now, this is the primary place where Christians have developed this perspective about who should and shouldn't take communion. And for good reason, right? The passage says that if we participate in this meal in an unworthy way, we will eat and drink judgment upon ourselves. I mean, who really wants that? I mean, Paul continues in the passage, if you, I just read a, a, an excerpt from it, if you continue in it, he says that this is the reason some of you all have gotten sick and some of you have died. This is not something to toy with. But I would argue that this passage has been misinterpreted and applied to create a dividing line that I don't think Paul originally meant to have. If you look at the full context of the passage, if you go all the way back to verse 17 and following, this is what propelled him to write about communion. Paul says that the issue that the church of Corinth was having is that these Christians were sharing this communion meal, right? It wasn't just a holy snack. It wasn't just, you know, something that we have a little, you know, a few crumbs and a little thimble of juice, but that there was a, it was a celebration of remembrance of Jesus, that it wasn't a good thing. You're getting together not for the better, but for the worse, he says, that there's divisions between the members, right? You're, you're eating a meal that is meant to unify you, but you got all your own factions and you're not, you know, crossing those barriers, in your church. Some, some are arriving early, and why are they arriving early? So they can really indulge well in that wine, and they're getting drunk before everybody else shows up. Paul says, that's not good. That's not what you're supposed to be doing. Some of you all are rushing to snatch the good food, and other people are showing up late and going hungry. They've turned what is supposed to be this sacred meal, remembering the suffering of Jesus, into a selfish way to feed their desires, to feed their egos. This is the behavior, this is the context of the behavior that Paul is speaking out against when he talks about eating or drinking it in an unworthy manner. Now, it's possible, there's a book called The Right Doctrine from the Wrong Text. It's possible that there is the right, that it could be a right doctrine of believer, non-believer, Maybe that is a line that's supposed to be there, but that's not what 1 Corinthians 11 teaches, I don't believe. So if this interpretation is correct, which I think it is, again, healthy skepticism, then this should radically shape the way we understand what it means to fence the table. John Wesley, who was the founder of the Methodist denomination, said that communion was a, quote, means of grace. It was a way we would experience, right? He would have been a number three, a receptionist. It was a way in which we experience the grace of God, and as such, he said, it should not be withheld from anyone, whether they be believers or non-believers. Now, I don't know if I'm 100% comfortable with that response, but I definitely lean more into what he personally leaned more into the teaching that he had, what's called the open camp, that the table should be open for people, more giving and less withholding when it comes to that. Now, you know, many churches have a threshold for taking communion being baptism. And I don't see personally uh, that hurdle listed anywhere in Scripture. Personally, I'm open to people of all ages participating in this gift. Now, just a side note, if you or any of your kids are, you know, want, want to get baptized, hopefully sometime this late summer, early fall, we'll be able to have a, a, a celebration of baptism. So you can cross that threshold if you go to another church. 
But here, I see this as a gift of God. Right? The root of that in Greek, charis. It's grace. This is grace for those who seek him regardless of their starting point. I am less concerned, and I think God is less concerned, ultimately. Well, maybe not ultimately. We talked about this at small group. Mentioned that sometimes God might be less concerned with our kind of the final way we end up, and I think he's more concerned about the journey. Right? He's, not, he's not interested in can we check everything off the list, but are we drawing towards him in that journey together? And so I often am, am less concerned about creating a big boundary of who is in and who is out. And I'm more focused on the direction. Are you moving towards or away from Jesus? If you are genuinely seeking Jesus, even if you haven't quite gotten to that point of crossing the line of faith, I think it's a gift to be able to experience Christ. And I I don't want to stand in the way of that. Maybe I'm just being cowardly. I don't know. But conversely, you've been a Christian for a long time, decades. But if you're moving away from Jesus... Maybe the next time we observe communion, it might, that might be a good one for you to abstain from. Reflect on this relationship that you have with him. I'm less concerned with the boundaries of faith and more concerned with the direction of that faith. You know, Sky and Caitlin, uh, as I mentioned earlier, were discussing communion a few weeks ago. And Sky gave this great example, and he talked about, uh, well, I just kind of internalize it as my own. It wasn't mine. It was him. But, you know, at our house, we have, it's one of our important things is we have a family meal every night that we are able. Even if it's just we sit at the table for 15 minutes together before everybody goes their separate ways. But this is an opportunity for us as a family to be connected with one another. For Sarah, we we usually do highs and lows of our day with everyone. And it's an opportunity for us to share our lives together, to be connected as a family unit. Now, if a, a, a friend comes over, some of you have met Christian, who's a friend of Austin's, comes to small group sometimes. I would say he eats at our house once or twice a week. I don't say, you know, you're not a biological part of this family. This, this meal's not for you. Or I don't say, you know what, you can share of the meal, but you can't do highs and lows. You know, he, he participates in that because he's treated as a member of the family. It's hospitality. I think this is the hospitality of Christ when it comes to the table. And, you know, just the Sky pulled this out as kind of the trump card, which, I, again, I don't necessarily have a, a response for it. That even on the night that Jesus instituted this meal, who was at that table? Judas. Jesus knew full well that Judas was about to betray him, but he's still offering his body and blood as a gift to him. He's not withholding it. I'm not going to go there. There, I, there is a whole, there's a whole element of like withholding communion for dis- discipline. You know, some of you might have heard in the news that the Roman Catholic Church withheld communion from Nancy Pelosi and Joe Biden because of their views of, of, of abortion, you know, that con- contradicts the Catholic. Uh, I'm not even going to delve into that because I, I, I'm, that's a whole other thing of withholding communion for people. But that, that's another tangent that we could go on to talk about. So, you know, this morning I know that I've provided a lot of abstract ideas. A lot of thoughts. You know, it's very teaching, information heavy. And so hopefully I've provided somewhat of a framework for communion to help you identify, like, where do I align on this, poss- you know, this, this spectrum of these four views? And, and I've 
provided some rationale, whether you like it or reject it, as to why I feel confident holding a, an open table when we celebrate the Lord's Supper here at Restoration Community Church. And as I said at the beginning, I, I'm, not, I'm not an ex- expert at this. Even if I was an expert, I, there's a lot of experts that are wrong. But I trust in God's grace that this is a non-essential characteristic of faith. Something that we ought to do because Jesus told us to, but our salvation is not dependent upon this. And so if you have questions or you want to discuss more on this, I'm happy to be available. I'm happy to, to continue to chat. So to answer that original question, let me see, let me put that back up here for you all. To answer the original question, right, different traditions, different churches have focused on different elements of this ritual, and we might not always agree on every part of what communion represents for one another or who should take it. But I believe that if we, with a clean conscience and a heart drawn towards Jesus, approach the Lord's table, we should not be made to feel like we are sinning. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. I don't think you should allow humans to spoil the treasure that you've received from God. So to close, I have, and actually, if, can someone text Sarah downstairs to let her know to, to bring the kids back up as I'm wrapping up? Thank you. Thanks, Allison. I want to close with two concrete take-homes for you. Now, while communion is a mystery, there are a couple of things that I feel pretty, pretty good that I can be confident of. Regardless of where we land on some of this earlier stuff, I think these are core elements of the celebration. The first is that communion is not meant to just be a recollection of facts. It's not meant to be just this purely cognitive remembrance of what Christ has done. Even if we find ourselves in the memorial camp where these elements are just symbols, when we participate in communion, we're not only proclaiming the death of Jesus until he comes again, but we are participating with Jesus in this event. In the Old Testament, to remember something was more than just like recalling. It's more than just like to, to read it in a, in a history textbook. But it was about seeing how this act contributes to our shared experience today. I mean, think about some of the feasts that they did, things like the Passover. It wasn't just a remembrance of, oh yeah, you know, there's that time that this, the, you know, this, the, the angel of the Lord passed over those houses and delivered the people from Egypt. But how are we a part of that legacy of what has happened? And so that is what it means for us to participate in communion. It's part of our shared experience. Every time that we chew on this bread, every time that the juice runs down our throat, we trust in God's love and faithfulness towards us. We don't just remember how Jesus showcased his love for us on the cross, you know, way back when but we look at how is he showcasing our love to us right now in the present. Now, the second element of communion of which I am sure is that this is a temporary expression of this feast. This is meant to be temporary. This experience is meant to be a foreshadowing of a greater experience with Jesus that is to come. Jesus said so much himself, right? I won't eat or drink this with you again until we eat it in the coming kingdom. Revelation 19, verses 6 through 9 says this, that describes the marriage supper of the Lamb, where we will celebrate this union with Christ. Then I heard what seemed to be the, the voice of a great multitude, 
like the roar of many waters and the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride, the church, has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saint. And the angel said to me, write this, take this into account, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. We have been invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Even going back to whether the table should be open or closed, we've all been invited. Doesn't mean everybody is going to respond to that invitation. Jesus had plenty of parables that said just as much, but we've been invited to that marriage supper of the Lamb. And every time we celebrate this meal, we boldly declare that truth. And so to close out our service together, we're going to go to the table of God. And so let me provide, I just want to give you those reflection questions that I provide each week as we prepare ourselves to savor the gifts of God. So the first is this. I gave you those four views of communion. Which do you find yourself most closely aligning to? Maybe why is always a good question too. Here's one, talking about open or closed, right? Where do you fall on that? What criteria should exist for someone to participate in communion and why? And the last one where we closed, how can you think about communion so that you can experience a glimpse of that future feast that we will share together in God's presence? Let me close in prayer. Lord, this is a mystery, a great mystery that we are doing our best to unpack, to reveal. I'm sure there are things that I've said that is in alignment with the core of communion, and I'm sure there are things that I've said that I've just gotten wrong. Pray that your Holy Spirit would cause us to remember those things and draw us to those things that are true and Lord, that we would be uh, open to changing perspectives on things that perhaps we are, we've aired. But above all, Lord, this is a gift. This is a gift reminding us, drawing us to your presence, inviting us to recall your love for us, that while we were sinner, sinners, you died for us. And may we participate it again today, And every day that we participate in that, reminding us of that day that we will share this meal with you in the age to come. In Christ's name, amen.